Hey guys, Dolly here. Joey and I are on vacation this week, so here's an unlocked bonus episode from an interview I did with Sandy Cheng, the host of the podcast Now in Color, a show where her guests teach her about the lives of forgotten people in history. The person I'm going to be talking about is actually a female Nobel Prize winner in science. So if you like this episode, consider supporting us for just $5 a month at patreon.com slash plumradio. Don't forget to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts because every review and rating counts and it really, really helps our show grow and reach new audiences. Hope you enjoy this episode. And if you miss us the way we miss you, hit us up at hi at plumradio.com. And we'll be back very soon with a brand new season two on Instagram Live on Sunday, August 2nd. God given. And it's all day. It's never been. It'll be cut in it. Putting the squeeze. They make money or on excessive materialism and militarism. We know full well that racism is still that hound of hell. Okay. Yeah, it is quieter. It does sound better. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for coming on this show. <laughs> of course. Thank you for having me. How have you been with this whole thing? I feel like every day is a journey, <laughs> a bad one. I know. I mean, I, during this pandemic, I just, it, it felt like it started a long time ago, right? It felt like it started it, way back in January. Uh, my family, my dad was actually already in China at that time because my grandpa's birthday, his 90th birthday was right on Chinese New Year. So... I felt like this has been going on for so, 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 so long, right? And really it didn't hit the US or we didn't feel it until March. But I was like, man, the world should have known when they canceled Chinese New Year, right? Like imagine if we canceled Christmas because of an illness. That is some shit. Right. That is something to really take seriously. But I don't think people understood the magnitude of canceling Chinese New Year. They're just like, oh, no lion dances this year? Sucks. <laughs> right? But this is like the one of the only two holidays people get on that side of the world. So I was like, y'all should have seen this coming. It was bad. <laughs> it was bad. And I also have like memories of seeing all these videos from Wuhan at the time and being like, wow that's horrible i wonder and i remember yep. thinking like will it come here like no yeah. way it will come here and then it right. did it totally did it totally did so yeah it's been wild but doing my best to like hang in there stay busy yeah so what are what are some things you've been up to since quarantine or since so much has happened so there's quarantine there are the protests <laughs> what what has been the life of Dolly Lee oh, so you know I'm a video journalist I do a lot of in-field production on short documentaries and most productions are pretty much on hold very hard to get insurance to have anyone cover your protection right now I mean cover your production right now um so that's still TBD when things are going to resume. I think it's going to take a year or two for production to get back to normal, at least. So in that this mean, in thing. this time, I know. That's really sad. will find a way. The industry will find a way. But unfortunately, it's affected a lot of video journalists. I know entire video departments have been laid off. Courts, Wired, um, where else? Like the, um, uh, Numerous publications got rid of their entire video team because... 
it's the most expensive and it does take the most time. So it's been a sad time for my industry. Um, so I've been trying to, you know, stay creative in terms of how I continue to reach, reach people with my work and my reporting. So I launched this weekly show called Plum Radio. Um, you can follow it on Instagram at listen to Plum Radio. And we do a weekly Sunday show. We give uh, commentary on news, pop culture, and politics, especially from an Asian lens, um, which I think is so important and needed right now. I think even COVID-19 showed us how much we needed this because um, previously no one was paying attention to what's happening in China, even though it's home to so many people and a huge portion of the global economy. Uh, but Americans tend to really only, I mean, we're lucky if an American can find Oklahoma on a map, right? So that's, that's where we're coming from. <laughs> now more than ever, you do need lens, a, a perspective that gives you nuance from both sides of the world, right? People who can understand news in English and in other languages. Um, there's so much more misinformation and, you know, just angry Twitter threads to go through now. And so that's kind of why we started uh, my co-producer co and co-host, Joey Yang, a good friend from college. That's why we started this thing to like reach people in their homes because that was our new normal. Give ourselves that this mental exercise of also just unpacking the week with our friends and with an audience to just be like, hey, you're at home. We're at home. The world is still turning. We still need to understand what's happening. And now that everyone has reawoken to racism, <laughs> I think that Big was a surprise. great time. <laughs> that was a great time to take advantage of this outrage you feel and do some learning. Yeah. So we're like, let's just let's get this thing out the door. Yeah. And I think this is like the perfect segue to introduce you and <laughs> introduce you to my listeners. Um, again, welcome to Now in Color. This is the podcast that brings those who have been erased from history back to the forefront. But of course, we're also living in history right now. So we're also going to talk about mm -hmm. those things as well. And with me today is Dolly Lee. She is a video journalist and filmmaker who has produced award-winning short documentaries about Asian American and Asian diaspora communities known for her video about the Mississippi Delta Chinese, which is how I knew you, actually. <laughs> she sharpened her teeth at Al Jazeera's AJ Plus as a video producer and on-camera host before moving to Hong Kong to launch the digital publication Gold Thread. Currently, Dolly lives in New York and is building Plum Media to create more diverse fiction and nonfiction content. Welcome, Dolly. Whew. Officially. Thanks, Sandy. <laughs> super, super happy to be on this show. I love the concept of Now in Color. I think it's such a great way to learn and share information with each other while catching up. So yeah, I'm super excited. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Like I said before, like I always knew you from that um, Asian Americans in the South video. And mm -hmm. I think we talked about this on the phone too, where I had my own confrontation with my own internalized racism of like oh mm -hmm. of course there are asian americans in the south and right. in my mind it's just like oh we're just bi-coastal and that's it there's like nothing in between right. so that video really opened my eyes as well i'm so happy to hear that because that video you know it was i put it out in 2017 with aj plus and to this day still so many people come back to me and say that that video changed their lives it really expanded their way of thinking of what immigrant who immigrants are and even in the comments when it was when it was a post on reddit um that was trending you see in the comments all these people who are confronting their own racism and what i love about the video is that everyone that watches it is like wait 
I actually am a little bit racist. Everybody, everybody has that feeling. It's like, oh, I didn't realize that there could be Asian people in the South. Wait, why wouldn't, why couldn't there be an accent is just a learned thing, right? Of course, Chinese people have been coming here since, you know, the 1800s. Why wouldn't they be in the South, you know, if white and black people could also be in the South? Well, black people were enslaved and brought to the South. But still, you know, Asians were traveling all over the U.S. Um, so I love I love that story. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you had a chance to see it and um, helped it helped you think more about our diaspora community. Yeah. And I think it is happening again with every well the black lives matter movement now mm-hmm. is like a, a huge reckoning i think for americans yeah. um because even for example at my own company for my survival job that i work at people mm-hmm. a lot of white folks are confused by racism like why it's still <laughs> happening and how it's still <laughs> happening and i'm just like what is like to me it's like our lived experience as a person of color in america but to see that confusion so blatantly Mm -hmm. like makes me realize that our education is so behind and also just like looking inwards is just not a thing here right and you know Black Lives Matter as a movement, it started in 2013, gained a lot of traction in 2014 with Ferguson. Um, That was actually when I started my journalism career in 2014. So the first things I reported on were Ferguson, Black Lives Matter, incarceration and, you know, police violence. And it's kind of crazy from there. It was a bit of a fringe topic to even have this angle of like social justice type journalism. Right. And back then people were definitely like, ah, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't talk about race that much. Like people don't like that, blah, 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 blah. And to see in 2020, six years later, now you have like fucking Louis Vuitton going, oh yeah, Black Lives Matter. (laughs) I'm like, my gym is emailing me Black Lives Matter. I'm like, what is, wow, what? I mean, it's amazing, right? People are finally talking about it. It like requires some massive capitalistic uh, upheaval for people to talk about it. But if anything good came out of this pandemic, it gave people a lot of time to think and reflect and to notice this long-standing issue of police brutality and violence towards black americans has been going on for a very very long time what do you think changed from ferguson to now because you know you know i've been having this conversation with a lot of my friends um people around me too of like well is it because of how long this particular video was of george floyd because eric garner also there was mm-hmm. we also mm-hmm. witnessed his murder and that was also right. broadcasted same with philando castile so what is different about this mm-hmm. particular moment you know as a as a journalist i i personally feel that every time i see one of these videos it hits me the same in the same way like same with when i saw Ahmad arbery's video this is before the protests even started people didn't even start protesting until they saw, saw george floyd's video it hits me the same way every single time which is just like pain and outrage and just you know, it makes me so emotional, right? And and I think what maybe is different is just the context of the world that we're living in, right? I think a lot of people are fresh off, at least for Asian Americans, they're fresh off the emotions of COVID-19, of feeling like ostracized or um, victimized for the color of their skin, for their appearance. Um, and I think that people have also been spending a lot of time at home and on the internet, right? And 
at some point your news cycle gets a little slow when you're like tracking the coronavirus numbers every single day. Um, and suddenly when there is such an outrageous piece of um, facts, right, like an outrageous piece of evidence, you have all these people who are sitting at their computers with nothing, like just pent up with so much pent up energy, right? And also anger towards everything, anger towards coronavirus, anger towards the government, anger towards the people who uh, are not trusting the government, anger towards the government for telling us so many different things. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Maybe wear an N95 or actually a handkerchief is enough or just use your hair, whatever. It keeps changing, right? So I think people are very frustrated by their own government, um, very attached to the news cycle, very attached to their computers. And all of these many myriads of dots of things that had to come together for people to finally pay attention to Black Lives Matter in a way where it's, you know, where your bank is telling you that Black Lives Matter. I think it really is a context. Um, the videos are all equally bad, equally painful to watch. And I think it's just a matter of like people's state of mind, right? And it kind of sucks that you had to get a global pandemic for people to really care. Um, but now what's amazing is like people are actually having these conversations, right? And no matter how you're having them, be it you disagree or you agree or, you know, you are outraged by looting or you don't understand, you're forced to have the conversation. Um, and I, yeah, I think it's just the context of our current existence. Yeah. And I will say this time around, too, I am pleasantly surprised by how Asian Americans are becoming more vocal. Um, that was something. Absolutely during Ferguson that was really frustrating because I don't think that conversation was had enough. And I think, you know, mm -hmm. with Trump getting elected and with COVID-19 yes. and us being the scapegoat, once again, that really pushed mm -hmm. that conversation forward, which was mm -hmm. so needed because I think we had ten, we kind of shied away from it and we're like, oh, that's a black and white issue, but it is right. everyone's issue at this point. It's and everyone's I'm, issue. Yeah. It absolutely says every, it's everyone's issue. And I think, you know, uh, with the upcoming presidential elections, right, we're really not that far from it. And your only two options are like Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Oh, <laughs> Right. Like, uh, think about the hopelessness that people feel. I think that is another contextual point to how we're suddenly having this mass awakening. And it's not like I really think Bernie Sanders would have been the answer to everything. But I do think that a candidate who is not Joe Biden would have given people some hope, at least, of potential change. But now it's like stuck between a rock and a hard place. You know, I'm not sure if this man is experiencing, you know, like amnesia before my eyes or something, you know, I'm like concerned. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to watch Joe Biden and to think that it's that really is our, our only option <laughs> at this our point. Our only option, right? Like I watch Trump, I'm outraged. I watch Joe Biden. I'm like, this is a sad situation. I... I don't even know. How does the Democratic Party justify putting this man on the spot who's clearly way too old? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we recently, I didn't get to see you there because everyone was masked up, thankfully. We were mm -hmm. at the same protest. Um, yes. I wanted to get your thoughts on that protest because mm -hmm. I actually had some of my own, but I wanted to hear yes, from yes, you yes, too. Yes, 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 yes. 
Um, so it was, uh, for our listeners' context, it was um, an Asian-American protest for Black Lives, to stand in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, which was really surprising to me. I was really excited to go. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some like thoughts or feedback that you took away from that march? Yeah, so I actually filmed at this protest. You know, I really wanted to capture... Um, I really wanted to capture this moment in history for... Uh, the black and Asian com- community. And I think, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways in which people have been looking at this, right? Like, one can argue, like, why is, why should there be an Asians for Black Lives Matter? You know, we shouldn't center age, our, our identity of Asianness around this issue. We should all be here for Black Lives Matter, which is absolutely true. Um, but to understand what it means to mobilize a group of people, you know, you also under- have to understand that it helps it helps communities to see other people standing up and to see other people getting together to stand to stand for a cause, right? You'll see on Justice for George, NYC, or whatever you know, protest Instagram page you follow for the official protests. You see like uh, bikers for George Floyd, bikers for Black Lives, mothers, Christians. So there are all these different groups who do gather um, to show their solidarity, right? And as Asian Americans, perhaps we are also extra, extra critical of our own community and how we organize, right? Um, but there are, there are quite, definitely quite a few issues that came up along the way, things I'm still unpacking. Um, there was like... There are uh, some Asian American activists and organizers who have been organizing in New York for a long time brought up very serious concerns about one of the organizers, the Asian American organizer and his political leanings. Um, he was very publicly uh, a fan and working with a candidate named Steve Lee, a New York City candidate who is a cop who is suing the NYPD for what he says is corruption. Um, so he's kind of a... You know, depending on whose Twitter thread you want to read, either he is like a some people say he's a corrupt cop. Some people say that he is a cop that no longer has any rights because he tried to um, uncover holes in the NYPD. Um, But either way, you know, there's a lot of back and forth about, you know, who's leading this uh, who's leading this Black Lives Matter march? What are his politics? Who should be leading it? and things like that in part and where to me that gets a little into the weeds is like once we fall into the traps of infighting then we lose sight of why we're here we're here because the black american struggle has been one that's been going on for decades that our community has largely been silent on and the reality is that protest brought out 2000 people and the reality is no other asian group long standing activism or not has organized a protest, right? So I think it's important to always do better and for activists and new activists to learn from one another, right? Um, But to say like, you know, to decry an entire movement that clearly did bring out a lot of support and encourage people to um, organize as Asian Americans, you you can't just look at that at the at that turnout and be like oh that's invalid right like most people who are not asian american activists will see that event and go wow a lot of asian americans support black lives matter and i think at the end of the day that is what we want to achieve we want to show support for black lives matter for the black struggle 
the infighting needs to be worked out between the activists and the organizers. There is almost no point in um, engaging in that type of conflict if you lose sight of what the goal and purpose is. Yeah, definitely. And I will say that it was definitely a moment of just inspiration for me as well mm-hmm. because right before then I had not even like stepped outside of my neighborhood yes. um and this I is had so true for many there. people yeah. yeah um I'm a new biker in New York uh, yes. that's very I exciting love for biking me in New York <laughs> love it love it so I like braved the Williamsburg Bridge I was like you know what I need to yes. make it to this protest so I'm kill it kill yeah. it kill it kill it so I'm definitely I was so thankful that this um movement was brought together and you're right there's there's a lot that we need to work out within our community but at the end of the day that that was such a great showcase of solidarity for the Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter movement that I had never seen before. And right. um, I think I even was talking to you on the phone about that. I was feeling really discouraged about um, mm-hmm. Asian Americans and Black Lives Matter just because I was having conversations with other Asians who are not in these, I guess, liberal progressive bubbles of New York, LA, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And it just made me realize that, oh my God, we have so much work to do. And like, we are sometimes just as complicit as Mm -hmm. the white folks that we criticize a lot for you know discrimination anti-blackness things like that because i was having so many of these conversations with i guess white adjacent asians and i was just Mm -hmm. so just disheartened by it um yeah so we do have a lot of work but i'm really excited for the work that's being done right now same. And I know everyone's doing it in a slightly different way and organizing in different ways. So I really hope that it can come down to these people who don't agree can just get together and work out what it what it is that they don't agree upon and perhaps unite forces and get their combined communities to show support because we're just not going to get anywhere if we just keep fighting among our own minority group or already a small population. Right, exactly. And that's something I've been talking to my parents about because I know one of the hard work we have to do is talk to our parents. Um, Mm -hmm. And you actually told me that there's so much fake news on WeChat, which I just was not aware of. (laughs) I was just like, yeah, fake news is on Twitter and Facebook and that's it. But it does make sense that it's on WeChat. Fake news is next level. It's like chain mail from the 90s that, that, you know, they're internet sophistication in terms of how it curtails fake news i would say is still a little outdated they're catching up but there are so many people on chinese internet like four times as many people on chinese internet as there are on american internet so just imagine how fake news can spread like wildfire yeah my parents at this moment especially my mom thinks i'm about to get kidnapped by the u.s government for telling people to vote in their local elections because oh my she's God, recently no, no, no. new to Facebook. And of course, on Facebook, I'm always telling people, please vote in your local elections. You know, talk to your city council members. And I don't know if it's something that's lost in translation, but to her, mm. she's just like, you're being too vocal. The government is going to assassinate you. Like, this is oh literally, goodness. we got into <laughs> a huge fight going- about this last week. And like, there was screaming involved. And Oh my God, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. so that's where I am with my conversations oh. with my parents. <laughs> 
Uh, you know, I, I tried to call my dad out last week. Um, he's actually still in China, but he was like sending all these videos of um, young black teenagers who were either just pretty much doing stupid shit. Like it could have been any teenager. They're like pushing random people. And I was like, why are you actively selecting only videos of black teens who are misbehaving? Like this could literally be any teen, Asian teen, white teen, whatever. A lot of teenagers are just bad and they're bullies. And I was like, this is, this is actually racist and it's prejudice what you're doing. And he's like, oh, we can't talk about this right now. They're listening. And I was like, nobody's listening on your conversation. Like, who do you think you are? No one cares about you talking about Black Lives Matter over WeChat video chat. Nobody cares. And he's like, no, 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 let's not talk about this now. I was like, you're using this as an excuse to avoid me confronting you about your anti-blackness. And he's like, I'm not racist, but we can't talk about this right now. It's political. And I was like, no, this is literally not how it works. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely like a heightened paranoia. And what's yeah. interesting with my mom currently is, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around this, is so my, both my parents are from Taiwan. Um, my mm-hmm. grandparents were, you know, they escaped China during the Chinese Civil War to Taiwan, all that. You know, mm-hmm. they're like, Chiang Kai-shek is the best, even though he was yeah. awful in its own way. Got um, his own problems. <laughs> exactly. And for the longest time, I was like, yeah, Taiwan is cool. This is like where safety is in my mm-hmm. mind. But now all of a sudden, my mom is super pro-China, super like, mm. Taiwan belongs to China. And like that discourse mm. is coming up a lot. Um <laughs> I don't even know where I was going with that, but that's, it's just very, yeah. and it is, I tie it to when she started using WeChat is what I was trying to say. Nationalism is incredibly strong right now in China. And it just, it comes with being powerful with money, you know, like China has a lot of power over Taiwan too. Like anyone that wants to do business in Taiwan, they need to be friendly with China. You know, so many of um, young Taiwanese people aren't even living in Taiwan anymore because there are no job prospects. They all end up working in China. Um, and that's that's a tough reality, right? Like we have two global superpowers who are both extremely patriarchal and very capitalistic. And as much as people want to call China a communist state, it's really capitalism driven. It really, really is. And the sooner we can use the framework of capitalism to talk about it, the more accurate our conversations will be will be because I think this describing it as communism almost almost doesn't do us any justice in terms of truly understanding the extreme wealth inequality and the corruption that happens um, in that country, right? And you have to hold both of these superpowers accountable, right? And that I think that is the hard part. Before we dive into the history, I would love to know a little bit of your personal history of where you grew up, how you got into journalism, like where did this passion for journalism come from and all of that. So wherever you would like to begin. So I um, I grew up in New York. I was born in Manhattan, raised in Brooklyn. And my family's still here. My family's still in Brooklyn. My brother's in Queens. Um, but I've lived all over. You know, I would say the, the experience that really helped me understand my desire for storytelling 
um, is when I moved to Texas. I went to Rice University down in Houston, Texas to finish school. I went there for three years after I'd gone to NYU for a year. And I had never been to Texas, never visited Texas or anything bordering Texas. But the reality was I couldn't afford school in New York and Texas and Rice University gave me an incredibly generous scholarship um, so that I can actually go as a low income student. Um, And I had to take the opportunity, you know, the school was small. I was looking for something that was going to be smaller than my high school. I went to Brooklyn Tech, which is the largest public high school in the country. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, ended up in Texas. And while I was in Texas, that was when I realized that my New York bubble was a bubble that I just did not see that there was truly a world outside of what I thought was the universe. You know, you're always told that New York is such an international city, home to everybody. And to so, in so many ways, that's true, right? But it also allows you to ignore how vast the rest of the U.S. is and how much diversity and how much immigration has happened in this country, right? If without Texas, I wouldn't know that there were Chinese Southerners, for example. You know, it's very much because of Texas that I opened my eyes to the idea that there could be Asian people in the South. Like, of course, right? But if I stayed in New York, I would have never thought about these people or finding their stories, right? Um, I studied visual arts at Rice, which, you know, was mostly more like fine arts, um, painting, sculpting, drawing, printmaking. Um, but even in that time, my favorite activity was, uh, you know, the, the thing that I really focused my thesis on was uh, creating installation spaces. So these kind of like altered spaces where you can go in and like have an experience of something different, like an alternate reality. Um, and the saddest piece of feedback I got in my senior studio art class was our professor, the great John Sparagana. <laughs> he said, this was after I failed to um, make much progress on my project, and but I had given this long-winded story about why I wasn't <laughs> where I needed to be. And he's like, Dolly, it sounds like you should just go into storytelling instead. And I remember being <laughs> so hurt. I was like, I am an artist. How can you say this to me? <laughs> Oh my God. (laughs) And that is that what struck you? And you're like, all right, this is my passion and I'm going with it. (laughs) For a while, you know, it it still took some time for it to all come together, but it was truly, you know, I started at even AJ Plus at Al Jazeera as an artist. I started as an illustrator, um, doing a lot of illustrations for Black Lives Matter, doing infographics. So that brought together this combination of research and reporting with visuals. And very naturally, once I started working there using, you know, like the skills that I have already been cultivating for a while um, in the world of art, naturally as a video company, Al Jazeera was like, okay, now we have all these things made. How do we move them? Right. And I was like, okay, let's, let's start thinking about that. So then from drawing and illustrating, I started making animated videos, often for stories where people didn't want to be on camera. Right. One of the first one I did was about a woman's experience in solitary confinement. And she gave this amazing, heart-wrenching audio interview. Naturally, you can understand why, why she might not want to be on camera. So I worked with an animator to do a bunch of drawings and storyboard and illustrate and worked with her, one of my good friends, Marissa Cruz, to then animate and bring this woman's story to life. Um, and that's where I really got introduced to making video. It was through making art Um, And once I saw this new medium, you know, video 
before the the era of iPhones and smartphones was really not accessible for low-income people, right? Who's going to give you a video camera? That's thousands of dollars. And then the tape required. And then the way you have to like log footage from tape to like VHS and then edit it. It's not something that's accessible to a lot of people. Um, so it was never introduced to me as a medium, even as an artist. And I felt that during my time at AJ Plus, that was when I really started seeing me- uh, video as another way of creating art. And I still see so much of my reporting in that way. Like there's the extra element of like, there's a narrative involved, fact checking, research, um, interviewing people and things like that. But I still believe in it as making a visual medium, uh, making visual art for people to learn and consume information. Um, So that's really how I got into it. And, you know, from there, worked on a lot more videos, some in studio, some in field. And that's how I ended up, you know, I had pitches for a very long time to do the story on the Chinese diaspora communities around the U.S., including the one about the Mississippi Delta Chinese. Um, And that wasn't until 2017. So I essentially was nagging them for like two, three years to make this this documentary series, um, but for a long time they had said no because they thought the topic was too niche. Yeah, it's one of the, I think it's pretty much viral, has millions and millions of views, right? Um, I remember seeing that and being like, oh my God, like, why isn't this everywhere? <laughs> it should be, it, right? It should be everywhere. But it turns out once I start putting those stories out, the Asian diaspora stories I continued committing my career to have always just performed very well on their platform as well. And I'm like, I get that you see it as niche, but there's such a thirst for this information. And it's not just coming from the Asian community, right? It's also people who don't know and want to understand the Asian community because it's the fastest growing minority group in the U.S. who are also curious, right? So... I think what it did that I'm incredibly happy about is that it showed the journalism industry that when you focus on minorities in your stories, including Asian minorities, there's an audience. People want this information, right? And from there, I I saw a lot more stories come out about Asian communities, um, unknown stories, untold stories, and that's like, to me, that is the greatest piece of journalism when you can prove to the entire industry that these stories are worthwhile and that more Asian American journalists will be allowed to work on stories, you know, about their own communities, right? Like Vietnamese, Filipino, there's so many more to go. Um, and that's why I'm, I'm excited for, you know, seeing how the industry evolves. I'm excited for, you know, making Plum Radio and, you know, my, having my own media company now um, to find a place for all these stories that are so many people have been told are too niche for a mainstream right. publication. And I'm so glad you did that with the journal, <laughs> journalism industry, too, because I think that was happening in parallel with entertainment, because I think mm-hmm. around that time is when Crazy Rich Asians came out. And yeah, again, just like an all Chinese or all Asian cast, all Asian least. cast. Mm-hmm. Um, And again, like, I'm sure if it was like just a few years prior to that, people would say like, oh, this movie won't do well in the box office because Mm -hmm. who cares about these Asians and their lives? We want to see. Because I think before um, Kevin Kwan was saying that they wanted 
Rachel Chu to be a white woman or something like girl. that. Yeah. Right, right, so right, So glad right, they right. chose Constance Wu instead. <laughs> Absolutely. I think there are people who are still like, oh, I wish Crazy Rich Asians had more depth. But people have to understand that it takes so many steps to get to that next level, right? Like, there are going to be so many crappy movies and documentaries made that also also all matter and are contributing to the culture before we get something that's like our Selma or whatever that is, right? We are all working towards expanding our political consciousness. And I know Crazy Rich Asians is not exactly expanding the political consciousness. <laughs> of course. It's, but it's giving us something that's entertainment. And we also deserve entertainment just as much as we deserve wokeness. Exactly. Um, I always say because lately there's been criticism with uh, Constance Wu being a diva and who knows how true that is. But Mm -hmm. even if she were a diva, I'm like, well, at least we need one Asian diva in Hollywood. Like, I'm okay with that. Like, I hear about so many white celebrity divas. Like, I'm glad she's a diva. Cool. Own it. Own it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so you made that video. It went viral. And then tell me more about Gold Thread and how that began. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I worked on those videos and I had been at that point uh, with Al Jazeera for three years. I had also gone through an election with them, the 2016 election, which I also covered. We did a 24 hour live event. And like the rest of us liberals, you know, we were also convinced that Trump could never win. And he really and truly did. And that was a hard awakening for so many people who work in media, right? Like, how much did our creation, you know, social media video lead to this? How much did Twitter lead to this? How much did our own, you know, biases as mostly West Coast and East Coast elites lead us to ignore all of the voices in the middle, right? This again goes back to like the stories of the Mississippi Delta Chinese. Um, people who are real communities who we often overlook because we cherry pick for people who have only ever gone to like Ivy Leagues or, you know, UCs. And how much of the world can you really see if you're only in New York and the West Coast? Um, so by then, I was actually quite disillusioned with American media. Uh, I wanted a little break from Trump from the inside. And I wanted to kind of find a way to watch what was happening from the outside. Um, And it came at just a a really lucky time when the South China Morning Post, a really old newspaper of Hong Kong, it's their legacy paper. It's written in English. It's been around since the 1800s. I liken it to like the Wall Street Journal of Hong Kong because it's very business focused. Um, and kind of old and white. There are a lot of old white British dudes that work there, along with a lot of locals. But, you know, the white, old white British dudes are often at the top of, you know, the editorial line or the copy editors. Um, and they, like many old newspapers, were like, hey, like, we want to we want to be on the Internet. We want to be on Instagram and we just need some help. <laughs> 
So they recruited me to work on a project that was essentially to help them get on the internet, right? <laughs> not that they weren't, they not, they had a dot com and everything, of course, but to make like social video for uh, a, something more youth focused with a more youthful voice and very visual. Um, at that time, they didn't have a name for the publication yet. Uh, Gold Thread was something that we came up with when myself and the the other co-founder, Vicky Victoria Ho, uh, she's the executive producer of Gold Thread. She's still there um, when we came up with the name Gold Thread. Um, and that was how we started building out this team with this vision um, that, you know, of course, it still had to serve uh, SEMP's mission, which is to lead the global conversation on China. Um, so it covered... It covered Hong Kong, Taiwan, Macau, and mainland China through stories about food, culture, travel, very human human interest stories, really, um, and told for a U.S. North American audience. Um, so the cool thing is, because it was a startup, it had its own budget, it had its own editorial voice outside of SCMP. It was really treated like a unit outside of the main newsroom, which was kind of awesome to work in that rogue way. Like you can make things really quickly and change things really quickly, quickly. And we wrote in American English, uh, SCMP writes in British English. Um, so in a lot of ways we had our own editorial voice. And so I worked on building gold thread for about a year and a half, which was honestly just one of the most informative and hardest experiences of my life. It kicked my ass to launch a startup within that period of time. And I was lucky that it was already funded. Like, thank God I didn't have to do the fundraising for it. It was right. A, that a was actually going to be my next question yeah. was like the funds. But thankfully, you already had thankfully, that. I didn't have that. And it's it's not a cheap project. We had like a 10 person team video again. So, so expensive, especially when you're traveling to film. Um, but it gave me the ability to do what I do now, which is to like build something from the start, right? Like to think about things like who's our audience, what's our voice, what's the strategy for getting the content out? What is stuff that we should make every week? What's special, you know, what should we invest our long form in? How do you cultivate a community? How often do you post, you know, do you say a certain word? Like, how do you classify um, Hong Kong? Do you call it a city? Do you call it a place? Do you call it a region, right? Like, there are all these little details that go into creating the voice of a publication that um, that now, you know, I'm thinking about with Plum Radio and Plum Media, um, but so much of what I learned came from building Gold Thread in Hong Kong. And it's still going. Gold Thread is still alive and well. Um, and yeah, they they still bring a lot of the most interesting stories from Asia. Yeah. What was the decision to leave Gold Thread to start Plum Radio? Um, was there something in between that happened? Yeah. So you know, as soon I basically knew that I was ready to leave Hong Kong um, when I felt that you know the the publication I wanted to create. I still felt like I wanted it to have uh, an, an American lens more as a focus. I think by virtue of Goldthorpe being in Hong Kong, it necessarily, it should take advantage of its geography, which is, you know, to be in Asia, to be right there covering it all. Um, but for me, you know, my interest is still like understanding the world through an American lens, um, through my own lens, right? An Asian American lens. And I think that to get Asian Americans and Americans in general interested in talking about China with nuance, you first have to cover diaspora content. Otherwise, 
again, it's like asking Americans to find Oklahoma on a map. If I mean that, that's what we're at right now. So to get them to be like, oh, why don't you also care about this international superpower? That's a huge ask, and people are not going to cross that bridge unless you build that bridge, right? And I do believe that we need to understand China much more than we do now. You know, which is what I believed when I started Gold Thread as well. It's not my only belief nor interest as a journalist, though. And, you know, I think that Asian Americans are complex and have many different topics that they're into. And I want to see an Asian American publication that doesn't just focus on identity, right? I want one that talks about Black Lives Matter. I want one that talks about the upcoming elections. I want one that will also tell me about what's happening in Iran with sanctions that the U.S. is imposing. I also want one that's going to tell me what's happening in Mexico because a big earthquake just hit earlier today, right? And then also be able to tell it from an Asian perspective, right? Like how I talk about tofu is going to be so different from how like the New York Times talks about tofu and just existing as a voice in that space, interpreting the same mundane topics is adding that extra plus one and extra trust and authority that a lot of English language media publications may not have with our community, right? Like I find it hard to trust what the New York Times says about Hong Kong, you know, and I can't help it. I've worked there. I speak Cantonese, Mandarin and English, and I know too much to trust the New York Times. Right. Yeah. And I really appreciate your perspective on this because something that has been frustrating me for a long time with Asian American publications and media is is because it's it doesn't go. I mean, we are trying, but it doesn't go past beyond like boba and like boba becoming part of our identity and to be frank i don't even drink it that often i like it it's great really i don't even like boba (laughs) we put out we put out this episode of plum radio for our patreon subscribers only that actually unpacks boba liberalism with um jenny g jong who is a writer at eater and she wrote this very critical essay on boba liberalism Uh, so yes definitely a topic that we've been talking about a lot these days as well just let's go a little bit deeper you know tapioca is from south america (laughs) right exactly and it is it is frustrating but it's so great that you are starting a publication or a media company that will I'm I'm just putting all this faith and hope in you now, Dolly. No pressure. Like, <laughs> that was like will... fingers crossed. We're gonna dismantle white supremacy. <laughs> exactly. Because just that's something I've more. been searching for. <laughs> right. Because I want more depth. I want, yeah, more than boba and more than foodie culture, um, which yes. is all important and great. I love food, but you know, just more to our humanity mm-hmm. because you're right we are complex and we have nuance um so why not tap into that and exactly. there's a whole other world to look for yeah. yeah and i just i hope that i can be like a go-to resource for many different topics you know everything from how do we talk to our parents so like what you know what is the future of recycling look like when you know our recycling international recycling laws have changed to you know like um how what does reopening after covid-19 looks like look like right like all of these topics are, are so relevant to us but you don't necessarily have to be asian to consume this information 
Right, exactly. Yeah, and on that note, we have your historical figure. I don't know if you wanted to do the introduction or I can read the little bio oh, you yeah. sent over. I'm happy, I'm happy to do the introduction to her. Um, I chose today a Nobel Peace Prize winner of science. Um, and her name is Tu Yo-Yo, and she is the first... Chinese national, so that means she's from the People's Republic of China, a PRC citizen to receive a Nobel Peace Prize in science. And she's not only the first Chinese citizen, she's also a female scientist. And though when she got this uh, Nobel Peace Prize in 2015, it was about 30 to 40 years too late, not too late, but 30, 40 years after her incredible research, which is um, to find a, a treatment for malaria. Um, hopefully I'm going to pronounce this right, but the treatment is called um, artemisinin. Hold on, hold on, I can get this right. Artemisinin. Artemisinin. Yes. Artemisinin. It's a chemical from derived from wormwood. It's what they are able to distill absinthe with. So wormwood, when you make like a tincture, for, and there are different types of wormwood. Um, I believe the one that she distilled it from in Mandarin, it's called Qinghao, which is a sweet wormwood. Um, and when you create a tincture with it, for example, some people just use it for sleep. Um, if you take a lot of it, some people say you can have a very hallucinatory dream. Wormwood has a lot of really powerful qualities. Uh, but what makes Tuyoyo's project so special um, is that she... So the research for a malaria drug started in China and all over the world. China was also just one of the countries that was participating in this global endeavor. Um, started in the 40s during you know the Civil War and things like that, Cultural Revolution. Everything kind of took a break until the 60s when the Vietnam War started. And so you have all of these soldiers in, you know, U.S. soldiers, Vietnamese soldiers, many soldiers who are dying of malaria. And China, uh, along with other countries, then basically re-upped their research and went back to work on whatever they were working on, whatever discoveries they had made um, to try and find a cure. And Tuyoyo was leading the malaria team um, in China. And, you know, I think with science, a lot of these things, like especially Nobel Peace Prize, they often focus on the individual who did all the work because it's it's quite a Eurocentric concept, right? Um, but I believe very much um, in science, and I think a lot of academics would agree that for a discovery like this is truly probably a, a team, a massive team, is involved. Um, but why Tuyoyo got the credit for this? is she actually went back into these ancient Chinese medical textbooks. So textbooks that were focused more on herbal uh, remedies, right? And she found a very old passage on how to extract the powers of wormwood. And typically in an extraction for medicine, you boil the substance until you extract the compound, right? But in this old Chinese text, in this um, Chinese uh, medical book, it said to not boil it, but to use cold water to get the um, to get the compounds out, right? So Tuyoyo, instead of boiling it, which would destroy the compound that would eventually lead to this cure for malaria or this uh, a remedy for malaria, she soaked it in ether. And that simple change that came from this ancient Chinese textbook was what led to artemisinin being discovered as this 
one of them, what people have said is to be like one of the greatest, most important cures that mankind has discovered in the last hundred years, right? Like malaria is not a problem for us anymore, right? And what I, why her story has always resonated with me so much ever since I read about it in 2015. And I've always been like, why has no one like done a story about this? Is like when you think about how TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, is talked about in like the Western culture, right? It's often tied to kind of kooky things, kooky holistic medicine, right? Like Reiki and massage and energy healing combined. You know, there's a lot of negative things that are said about herbal medicine. Uh, but a lot of ancient cultures, from Egyptians to Chinese, have been using medicine, plant-based medicine, for so, so long and with serious uh, uh, consequences and serious remedies, right? And we forget that so much of our modern medicine that we now get to just consume in, f in pill form, even things like, um, like painkillers, right? Like even that comes from a plant at some point, right? Until now everything is turned and mashed into a compound or like some chemical substance. But the origins of painkilling comes from like the bark of a tree, right? Um, and I think I, what I love about that is just going back to the roots of healing, right? The roots of nature, even with the name Gold Thread, um, back to the publication that I launched at SCMP, when we were thinking of a name, it's really, really difficult to name a publication, right? Like it's, you know, it needs to somehow represent everything yet not say too much. Um, and how we even came upon the name Gold Thread was like my first month in Hong Kong, I was sick and I needed antibiotics. And I was like, oh, well, Hong Kong is so big for herbal medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, that even your health insurance will cover TCM if you choose an herbal doctor. So it's like, okay, I know the antibiotics really like mess up my stomach sometimes. So maybe I'll try something herbal and see where it goes. So I went to a Chinese herbal uh, pharmacy and I got antibiotics there. I was looking at the ingredients and one of the ingredients said gold thread. I was like, oh, what, what is that? I was like, that actually sounds like such an interesting name. And when I looked it up, it turns out it's a plant. It's a root that is native to both Asia and North America. Wow. I, I love know. this story. <laughs> I love it. I, I just realized I've been like making facial expressions. and I'm like, oh, no one can see. But I'm like <laughs> beaming and just like so excited. This is truly like some divine intervention happened. Here. Yes. Yes. So I mean, all of this is all it's all tied together. Uh, but yes, I saw that name. I looked it up. I was like, this is a, it, apparently it's a very common medicine in Mandarin is called Huanglian. And it is a very bitter root. It helps with if you have an upset stomach. So uh, I remember when we were we were reporting and filming in Chengdu in Sichuan, which is like the capital of spicy in China. Um, we were talking to this cab driver and we were saying like, what do you do? We were just joking around with him. We're like, what do you do when you have like a spicy stomach uh, when you, you know, you've eaten way too much hot pot? And he's like, oh, you just need to eat more huanglian. And we're like, oh. <laughs> Love. One of my love, one of my videographers, Mario, who his Mandarin was not great at that time. He was like, "My mom is Huang Nian." I was like, <laughs> I 
Actually, that makes no sense. <laughs> but I feel you. <laughs> this yeah. is like such an incredible story. And like while you were talking about Tuyoyo, Tuyoyo, um, yeah, yeah, I was just thinking about all of the. I guess they're like soap operas, Chinese soap operas that mm-hmm. I grew up with, which is like all the period dramas, yeah, where yeah, they would yeah. have like scenes where like the doctor would come in and it would seem like mystical or magical, but really right. it was just medicine at the time. And exactly. I think now there's just like a huge shift with Western culture to quote unquote Eastern medicine as like, mm-hmm. you know, healing through food is like a big movement now and holistic right. medicine is a movement now. And I think, you know, there is science. It's based in science. It's just that we mm-hmm. haven't taken western science western scientific lens on it so we mm-hmm. think that it's wacky or kooky or mystical exactly. and magical which really it's based on normal medicine and it's based uh, on chemistry you right know? and it's empirical on, science right right and why i think it's so special that someone like Tuyoyo becomes the first Chinese scientists, first female Chinese scientists to win the Nobel Peace Prize in science. It's like she, her discovery changed the world, right? It changed who was getting sick through malaria. And when you realize how she got there, which is through ancient medicine, it just shows that there is real validity in the work that scientists have done hundreds of years ago. You know, it's it literally is something that has changed modern medicine and our, our our ability to survive and our quality of life in this these last hundreds of years because she found out that Chinese wormwood or Qinghao can be soaked in ether but not boiled, right? And I don't think people have connected the dots in terms of how magnificent this is, right? Like that this Eurocentric Nobel Peace Prize awarding committee has chosen to give this woman who essentially used TCM to solve one of the biggest pains of man, malaria, that we have seen in the last few years, right? And that to me is just, it's so special that, you know, she's a woman, she finally got her recognition. And on top of all that, Tuyoyo, she did not have a doctoral degree. She does not have any published research on like the official Chinese Academy of Sciences, which is like, again, very male dominated. I mean, think about that era. We're talking about the 40s and 60s, how she even became the team lead for malaria uh, research and development is mind blowing, right? Yeah. I was going to ask like how she did end up at that on that team without these credentials. You know, I, I I didn't I didn't get far enough into seeing how exactly she ended up in her position, but you know, during the era of Mao, there was a lot more conversation about gender equality, right? Like he's so famous for saying, um, you know, the sky, like something like half the women sky hold is up held up by women. Women hold, yeah. hold up half the sky, right? And I think there was a lot more effort to like bring women into these spaces, right? But at the same time, you know, science was very controversial under the communist and cultural revolution. Many scientists, professors, academics were deemed as bourgeois, as intellectuals, and either killed fled to Taiwan or Hong Kong or sought refuge in other um, countries, right? So China actually lost a lot of these brilliant minds. So how Tuyoyo, despite 
no doctoral degree, no international research. She's she's never done any work outside of um, the borders of mainland China. How somehow she still became the lead of this team, I think is just fascinating. It's a phenomenal story and just goes to show, you know, like the power of women's minds and when we actually are able to like think creatively and radically and not limit ourselves to the confines of like medicine must be defined by chemicals and compounds and reactions you know like medicine itself has roots and those roots are literal roots it's the nature that we've that has been healing us for so long right and i love that you brought up just thinking more creatively because i think even now with this new reckon new reckoning of race in america Mm -hmm. i think people are really starting to question like you know my thought are my thought processes rooted in white supremacy for example and like Mm -hmm. how do i think Mm -hmm. outside of that and like what i deemed as i'm just saying this now because like the DEI, diversity, uh, equity, mm-hmm. and inclusion is like a hot topic in companies right now. <laughs> yeah. um, it's like the new buzz buzzword. And even right, then, right, it's right, just right. like... the new pivot. <laughs> right, exactly. It's the new perk of, to your company if you have DEI. Um, and even then, people are talking about it and and questioning like, oh, like what I thought was known as, you know, being professional, quote unquote, is mm. actually within the confines like who deemed something professional like what is professionalism it's really all old white dudes who came up with exactly a mask that we have to wear right right same thing with tuyo right it's probably all these men who have always gotten credit and she's never felt empowered or in a position to be like actually i get i deserve the credit right like she's probably just accepted that she's been sidelined Um, And it makes me think about what we're going through today, right? Like we are currently searching for a vaccine for COVID-19, right? And there is so much tension right now between global powers, especially when you have a really insane president like Trump who, you know, said stuff like like he would try and buy a vaccine from Germany to make sure Americans got it first, right? Like you can hear from so many scientists, researchers, um, um, medical professionals who are working on this vaccine that the medical world sees themselves without borders. They are focused on their common enemy, which is this illness, and they need all of the minds, be it minds in Germany, minds in Shanghai, minds in Iran, minds in California, all of these brilliant minds of science and medicine to come together and all work at finding a solution, right? And maybe that solution is in an old history textbook found in ancient medical texts of your culture or your people, right? That is very possible. And I think the way that Trump has antagonized so many other countries, including China, including Germany, including countries in Europe, about the U.S. deserving it first or having it first or keeping a vaccine to itself if it were to find one, goes exactly against, you know, this Tuyoyo's Endeavor, this Nobel Peace Prize um, award winner, and just the goal of, like, the medical international community of, like, let's fight this thing together, right? And that means sharing resources. And it's, there's so much antagonism, like, Trump is just, he has put a hold on um, 
foreign visas coming into the U.S., which prevents a lot of, you know, your engineers and your scientists uh, who have contributed so much to the advancement of American technology. Like Silicon Valley, that is built by so many immigrants and not just from China, from India, from all over. We have relied on importing like brilliant PhD mathematicians and engineers from other countries so that you can build these amazing technology companies, right? Um, and I think we're, it's as if we're moving, 2015 was not that far ago, but it's as if we're like moving away from that moment of celebration where on an international scale, you recognize this individual from, um, from China who did this uh, uh, incredible thing for mankind. And now we've kind of moved so far from that moment of realizing like medicine is global without borders. So now, you know, finding all these political petty ways to be like, I get a vaccine first, or you get a vaccine scene first or who is doing the competitive work of you know figuring out did covid come from a lab or did the 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 chinese government make this or maybe it was the u.s military that made that and it's it's such noise compared to like the work of tuyoyo right yeah and it is so disheartening to see american exceptionalism and individualism come at this time um, mm-hmm. and really just slow down these efforts because we all want a cure and we all want right. to get out of our, at least for me, our trash can apartments and right, leave right. quarantine. Right. Um, it's not just an American right to leave quarantine. It's like our lives are at mm-hmm. stake here. Right. Um, and it's just such a shame that this is happening with, with an insane president completely insane he's like there there's even these really right-wing politicians who try who are trying to introduce a bill to prevent any chinese nationals from coming in to study in the uh, stem fields to prevent them from being scientists technologists engineers and i would it's very new cold war but if you find all the cases of actual espionage, there are so, 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 so few. And like the U.S. already does not offer that many visas to foreigners. Like the way that the Trump administration talks about it, it's as if they're just handing these things out left and right. But anyone who's actually gone through an immigration process knows how difficult it is to get into the most exclusive club in the world, which is the United States of America. They vet you so so hard and there are so many hoops that you have to jump through to be able to work here to be able to live here um being even being able to immigrate here you are you have to be a part of a lottery or you have to go through marriage right and even within marriage there are a lot of steps for you to actually become to get a green card right you really have to prove that your marriage is real. You have to prove your contributions to the U.S. capitalistic machine, right? You have to show your taxes and things like that. So I think that, you know, today compared to, you know, 2015 as like this momentous realization of international contribution to medicine, it's just, it's like we're living in, in different worlds, you know? It's like we completely forgot the power of international collaboration and, you know, what the endeavors of science um, have brought us in terms of benefits as mankind. Yeah. And what is, is Tuyoyo still alive today? 
She's in her 80s. I don't think she's alive. Actually, I should probably check real quick. She might still be alive, though. Maybe she can't. Maybe she ate enough of that wormwood. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I found immortality, guys. She is alive. She is. She was born in 1930. She's 89 years old. Wow. Yeah. 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 We gotta learn from the Chinese wormwood <laughs> magic. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people now who are experimenting with cooking with Chinese medicine, Chinese herbal medicine, and I think that I would love for that movement to get stronger. Um, I know it's kind of like one of the barriers to entry is like people don't really know how to use Chinese medicine. So, you know, I look forward to seeing like young Asian folks uh, get into that field, be entrepreneurial. Maybe they can do like little package kits, you know, how people sometimes make like soup kits. I think there's so many creative ways to continue exploring the benefits of Chinese medicine um, and just accept it as something we can dabble with in our lives, right? Like we eat mint and basil and what what really is the difference between cooking with a bay leaf and cooking with like gold thread? <laughs> right, exactly. And I, <laughs> I do hope there is a movement towards that as well, because even just a few years ago, I got really in, interested in, you know, using food as medicine. And it was like, at the mm-hmm. time, I was just like, I feel really anxious all the time. And like, mm-hmm. is it what is it? And I got into, um, I believe his name was like Dr. Hyman, Mark Hyman. Does that sound mm-hmm. familiar? No, um, tell me about Mr. Hyman, Dr. Mr. Hyman. Hi- Dr. <laughs> Hyman. And I think he's like, he is definitely viewed as like a kooky guy or something, but I've been listening to his podcast and I'm like, a lot of this makes sense because mm. growing up, I definitely didn't really have any exposures to Western doctors. Like, I don't mm-hmm. really remember going to a doctor. I definitely got all my vaccines to go to school and all of that. But whenever I was sick, my parents or my grandparents would just be like, oh, it's time to do gua sha or mm-hmm. um, the mm-hmm, cupping mm-hmm. method and acupuncture. Yeah. And yeah, I yeah, do yeah. remember a lot of herbal medicine being brewed, like making the house smell yes. horrible. Um, and it's so bitter. to me, yeah, it's bitter. It tastes bad. And I'm like, I'm mm-hmm. gonna die. I just want to have bubblegum mm-hmm. flavored like cough syrup instead, right, like right. my white I'm friends. Like, Is that really better? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, growing and now that I'm adult and looking back, I'm like, I actually feel like that was actually much more helpful to me than mm-hmm. you know going to the doctor and just treating the symptoms and not really treating holistically and going towards like preventing it from anything mm-hmm. in the future. Um, and yeah. now, now like because I tend to hang out with a lot of actors, being an actor myself, mm-hmm. now like cupping is like the cool thing to do, <laughs> and like it's trendy, and like you'll show it off, yeah. like your all your cup marks on your back on your Instagram, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Because wow, when I was a kid, so I had to like tell my teachers, no, that. I'm not being abused. <laughs> they're like, what this do you mean you're being abused. cupped? They're like, what is cupping? This? And they're like, this looks like abuse. Can you imagine how many child services were called on little Chinese kids who got some cupping because they had like a bad cold or something? Oh my God. Yeah, I went to um, a super white, all white Christian school in California. And <clears throat> I remember my my teacher had to like talk to my parents because they saw the scraping on my mm-hmm. neck and they were like what the fuck is this what's happening yeah. and they're like yeah, no yeah, it's yeah. chinese medicine calm down <laughs> yeah. and i had to like hide that all the time 
Oh my God. I can't even imagine. Cause from their perspective, they're just like, Oh, you call it medicine, but really it's abuse and torture. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so God. I am, I, I do have hope that it is going to come on the forefront and maybe, I don't know, maybe goop will write an editorial about it and more people we can't rely will get on into goop. it. We can't rely on goop. <laughs> Plum reading will have to take this one on. <laughs> yes, Exactly. Imagine one day it's like a Plum Radio and Goop collaboration. I can't. I can't. My mind can't go there. I don't know if Goop is an ally. Oh, yeah. I haven't even checked their uh, corporate message if they're with Black Lives Matter or not. I don't think people have a choice anymore. It's like you, you are or you're going bankrupt. Yeah, definitely. And... I mean, I mean, I hate that it's lip service, but I'm also glad that it's just on the forefront of everyone's minds mm-hmm. right now because this was much needed. It was a much needed reckoning that needed to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. with that, do you, is there anything you want listeners to take away from Tuyoyo's story or from your own story or <clears throat> anything you learned from Tuyoyo's story as well? Yeah, I would say, you know, Chinese medicine has clearly given me a helping hand more than once in life. And I I know that there's a lot that we don't know about Chinese medicine as Americans, but know that it's been around for thousands of years. And that's also, to me, part of what's great about now so many people being interested in our Asian American history, right? Like, be it you're from the Philippines or the Pacific Islands or you're from the mainland, or Taiwan. There is so much that we don't know about our roots, our culture, the bitter, the sweet, the healing, the bruising. And I would love for people to take the time out to unpack all of that, um, to just learn and be open-minded to being surprised in all the many ways that I've been surprised uh, learning about Asian American history, which naturally traces us through our migration history. Um, And of course, I hope people will give Plum Radio a listen on Listen to Plum Radio. Uh, We try and bring in really fun guests, but also enlightening ones. Uh, We do mostly a talk show and then an interview. Uh, But we've had on Alice Wu, the director of The Half of It. She's amazing. She also did Saving Face. I love that movie. I love love that movie. Yeah. So needed. Um, And just like I remember Alice Wu from Saving Face was one of her Mm -hmm. first films, right? Yes. That was her first first film. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, She's only done that one and half of it. Yeah. Um, We had on Jimmy O. Yang and last Sunday or just this Sunday we had on a journalist that I also know from Hong Kong, Laurel Chor. And she's a Hong Kong native who's been covering the Hong Kong protests from the front lines, you know, since 2014 when it was the umbrella movement to the one that started um, in March 2019 with the extradition bill. Um, So we really just try and bring in a wide variety of guests. Um, So, yes, would love if people gave it a listen and, you know, send their thoughts about who they want to see on the show and what they want to learn about next. Uh, When is your next show going to be? Yeah, so we host uh, Plum Radio on Instagram Live every Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. 
we had a special episode at 9 p.m. for our Hong Kong guests. So I think in the future, if we have guests from Asia, we'll continue to do at 9. But yes, 4 p.m. Eastern time on Instagram live at listen to plum radio. And we also put our episode out as a podcast afterwards, uh, usually on Wednesdays, which I guess that'll be tomorrow. And that way people can catch it, you know, if they can't tune into the live and things like that. Yeah. And where can people find you personally if they want to follow you or you can be like, nope, don't want that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please do follow me. I am a public facing journalist would love uh, to have you guys send me your thoughts, write to me, watch videos that I've worked on. I'm Dolly Lee. You can find me on Twitter at D-O-L-L-Y-L-I and similarly on Instagram, but by Dolly Lee, B-Y Dolly Lee. So yes, you can find my work there. And if you are curious about my videos, you can find them also on YouTube. I have a whole playlist of videos that I've directed, produced, and worked on. Um, If you have run out of everything to watch, you can watch the Mississippi Delta Chinese short documentary. (laughs) (laughs) And one last question, just because it's also on the forefront of everyone's minds and you are a journalist where do you think the fireworks are coming from is there a conspiracy <laughs> the what's going on from? <laughs> and <end> My- with <laughs> that. <laughs> i okay so growing up in bensonhurst there were always a lot of fireworks in the neighborhood and they were always brought in by all of our italian american neighbors and i remember during july 4th when everyone would set off these crazy fireworks and firecrackers that the police would come arrest these italian neighbors who had the fireworks and then they like circle the block and bring them right back so i think the fireworks are coming from the cops <laughs> Here's my conspiracy theory. Yeah, I've been on Twitter watching all the conspiracy theories pop up, and I'm like, I have to ask. That'll be my last question. But yes, just remember that, listeners. It's coming from the cops, always. the cops. They did it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Dolly, for coming on Now in Color. This was so great. I'm so excited to hear your story and to hear Tuyoyo's story. It's just been so wonderful. So thank you. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks for having me. 